Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we'll be doing part two of our discussion on circadian rhythms. In part one, we laid a foundation for how they work, how we mess them up, and what we can do to correct them. In this part, we're going to look more specifically at certain applications so we can maximize their efforts, like while studying and exercising, for example. I think you'll find this episode to be quite insightful, so let's dive in and get right to it. As a brief review of what we talked about last time, your performance at any moment during the day is primarily determined by what you did the night before, when you ate, and how much you slept. To better understand this aspect of our circadian rhythm, let's take a look at some of the machinery that drives them. Modest fasting and exercise have the same brain-boosting effect due to something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. Neurotrophins are a family of growth factors linked primarily to nerve growth. BDNF is a neurotrophic that grows more and better nerve connections between the cells in the brain, leading to better overall brain function. One study conducted with well-controlled conditions showed that if you take a person who sleeps for eight hours and give them the same math lesson every day for a week, by the end of the week, this person will have mastered that particular lesson, going from scoring a 10 on a scale of one to 100 to scoring 100. But if the person sleeps only four hours, they go from 10 to 50 they master only half of the material. Another study conducted on over 300 students in Seattle found that not adhering to a regular bedtime was correlated with lower academic performance in both men and women, and women were found to be more sensitive than men to changes in sleeping patterns. This is interesting because one thing that the research has demonstrated time and time again is that school start times are counterproductive for actual learning. This being the case, if it was our intention to correct it, school should never start before sunrise. When you're a student, it's important to consider early morning light exposure, eating on a regular schedule, and avoiding bright lights in the evening, which could lead to poor food choices and going to bed at a regular bedtime. Besides studying, exercise is another area where proper circadian rhythm can make a big difference. Consider the case of Piet, as told in the book by Dr. Panda. Piet was a milkman who worked in the Netherlands. Piet worked as a milkman all his life, and he retired around the age of 60. He looked forward to retirement, when he would be able to sleep in late and stay home to relax. Most of all, he looked forward to spending less time on his bicycle, which he had used every day to deliver milk. Piet soon developed a new schedule. He would sleep in until 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning, and sometimes he would stay in bed until 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Alone at home, he would stay up late to watch TV, and gradually his schedule shifted, so he was sleeping as late as 11 o'clock or noon. He would barely leave the couch, and he snacked on whatever was in the refrigerator. He was also getting frail. After a few months, Piet started to feel low. He started seeing a psychiatrist, but the depression only got worse over time. He finally had to be admitted to a hospital and was scheduled for shock therapy. Fortunately, a second psychiatrist who worked at the hospital stepped in and read Piet's file. She realized that he had never had any sort of depression in the past during his entire working life and only small anecdotal descriptions of sadness from when his sister had passed away or during high school. Initially, she thought he might be suffering from post-retirement depression, but while Piet was under observation, the psychiatrist noticed changes in his sleeping pattern and his sun exposure. 
She made the connection that during his work life, he was waking up early and going outside to distribute milk, exercising the entire time. Yet, in retirement, there were whole days when he was staying at home, with little to no exercise or sun exposure. The psychiatrist changed Piet's sleep schedule and put him in a new room with lots of morning sunlight. She had him meet some of the other people at the hospital, and every day they took walks together in the morning and the afternoon. In just a few months, Piet was back to normal, with better sleep, social interaction, and daily outdoor exercise, and his depression lifted. You may be wondering how something so seemingly simple and low-tech could lead to such a profound change. Interestingly enough, I was researching the Spears Chiropractic Hospital in Denver a while back. I was curious to know more about what they did and how they managed their patients. One of the interesting findings was that every morning, every patient, regardless of their condition or severity, was to be taken outside to spend at least 30 minutes outside in the sunlight. At the time, this was viewed as a foo-foo therapy that gave the appearance of wellness without any real value. Today we know this might have been one of the most therapeutic things that was done for these patients. Speaking of this, let's take a moment to look at the modern hospital visit. I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune to spend the night in a hospital, but I have. One of the most annoying things that they do is to come in during the night and turn on all the lights so they can check on you and give you your meds or whatever. The problem is that at this point, we can nearly quantify just how much damage is being done by disrupting the circadian rhythm in this manner that at the very least, they are delaying the rate at which you improve, which will result in additional hospital days and more cost, and at the very worst, they might keep you from recovering altogether and lead to a higher mortality rate. What hospitals should do, if they knew the science and valued the health of their patients, would be to switch their lighting from blue light to amber light as the sun goes down. During the night, orange light would allow the nurses to do their jobs and check on their patients without disrupting their patient's circadian rhythm and impairing their ability to heal or get well or even just sleep through the night. Unfortunately, the problem with most hospitals is that they're run by hospital administrators who are not physicians. And the problem with most hospital boards, just like school boards, is that they're generally filled with people who are unqualified to be on them. In regard to the hospital administrators, who are simply glorified bean counters, Winston Churchill famously said that the financial people should always be kept on tap, but never on top. This is probably the most obvious reason why healthcare gets more expensive and procedures worse results with no accountability. For all the lip surface given to evidence-based care, there's hardly anything more evidence-based than the circadian rhythm, yet nothing is done to harness this power for the sake of the patient. On the flip side, what better opportunity do we have to demonstrate genuine evidence-based care and to, to deliver something that can genuinely make a difference than to offer insight and tools to aid the body in creating proper healing and function? All right, I'll get off my soapbox now, but I think this is one of the greatest opportunities before us, and clearly nobody else is interested in it. So let's go back to exercise. I'm sure you know that exercise has a powerful influence on hormones and immune components. So let's talk about some of those and how exercise is linked to circadian rhythm. After exercise, our muscles produce interleukin-15. IL-15 is known to increase bone mass, but it also causes deeper and better sleep. The fact that you might feel like you sleep better after exercise isn't just because you're tired. For this reason, if you're trying to correct your circadian rhythm, it would be a good idea to include exercise to harness its positive benefits towards sleep. In addition, Muscle cells also produce irisin, 
Irisin is correlated with obstructive sleep apnea, and exercise can reverse this. Obviously, sleep apnea is a major impediment to obtaining high-quality sleep, so this would be another great benefit of exercise and its effect on sleep. To make this connection even more profound, there was a study that was done to look at the internal clock itself. By turning off the brain clock, but seeing that mice still operate like they have one, we discovered that the muscle clock can regulate both the brain and sleep. Additionally, exercise increases production of heme, which regulates genes involved in fat and glucose metabolism. There's another aspect of sleep that affects movement. Cartilage cells don't multiply as much as other cells, but they produce a glue-like substance that forms the cushion between the bones. Most of this substance is produced at night in accordance with our circadian rhythm. When it's disrupted, this production is diminished, leading to symptoms of osteoarthritis. If we're going to do exercise, then it would be best to think about the timing of our exercise so we can benefit in accordance with our circadian rhythm. If you're going to do high-intensity exercise, or HIT as it's frequently called, it's best to do it before dinner. High-intensity exercise can increase cortisol to early morning levels, delaying the onset of melatonin production. Consequently, I would recommend, as a simple rule, to do high-intensity exercise in the morning and to do endurance-type exercises in the afternoon or even the evening. If you're like me, I sometimes get to the end of the day and realize that I haven't exercised, and the time before bed seems to be the perfect opportunity to do it. The simple shift that I have made has been to stick to doing endurance activity, in other words, lower intensity for a longer duration. There's a common mistake that people make, and I don't say this critically because I made this mistake myself. The problem is that this mistake is the result of people having wrong ideas about the role of blue light. More often than not, we're told that blue light is bad, and we're told that TVs and cell phones give us too much exposure of blue light. In short, blue light has been demonized as though it's the source of all problems. Remember, as we've learned, it's really an issue of timing. Nonetheless, when I was buying my new eyeglasses, they asked me if I wanted a blue blocker coating. Of course, I said yes, because that's the sensible choice, isn't it? Well, it turns out that people who wear blue blocking glasses all the time, like me, fail to benefit from exposure to the morning sun. You end up creating the opposite problem from the people who get too much blue light at night when you don't get any blue light in the morning. Consequently, I've been thinking about going in and getting another pair of glasses without the blue blocker so I can wear them in the morning and wear my current pair from the late afternoon on into the evening. You have to remember this anytime you wear sunglasses because they're probably blocking blue light. You could spend all day at the beach but fail to benefit from the light exposure if you wear sunglasses all day long and they're blocking out all the blue light. There's one final aspect I want to talk about because I think it's important to have proper perspective on how things actually work. If you remember, Dr. Panda began his career by studying circadian rhythm in plants. One of the things he studied was how the genes would turn on and off and these movements would coincide with the circadian clock. The biggest difference between plants and us is that plants can't mess up their clocks by making poor decisions regarding their food or their sleep. For this reason, their genes continue to cycle on and off with perfect timing. The important thing to think about here, and this coincides perfectly with a chiropractic philosophical perspective of health, is that health isn't about genes being turned on or off, but it's about the adaptability of being able to transition in line with homeostasis to allow genes to turn on and off. As Dr. Panda discovered, 
It's disruption of the circadian rhythm that causes genes to be stuck on or to be stuck off. And the solution is no more complicated than to correct the circadian rhythm and reestablish the proper pattern of turning genes off and on. Is it likely that this is a better explanation for the occurrence of cancer than the mere presence or absence of genes? When you consider that cancer is often blamed on a particular gene, and that gene either being turned on, typically, or possibly turned off, but then we know that not everyone with that gene will develop cancer. Then we're left with a gaping hole in our theory of how genes lead to cancer. Improper signaling, due to the disruption of the circadian rhythm, is much more in line with what we see in real life. So get a good night's sleep. You might just be preventing cancer. In this same train of thought, consider the gut microbiome. We all know that we have bacteria in our gut, and some of these bacteria dominate and play a major role, and others are less dominant, and they play a minor role. What you may not know is that different bacteria dominate at different times of the day, and these changes are triggered and controlled by genes, which in turn are controlled by circadian rhythm. So even with gut health, it isn't solely about making sure we have the right bacteria, but it's also about making sure our circadian rhythm gives the right signaling to trigger the proper genes to ensure that the right bacteria dominate when they are supposed to. Without this, a myriad of gut issues are possible, and even though the symptoms might vary, the root cause is still the same. This is why late night eating is likely to produce gut problems, especially if we do it habitually. So what we've seen here is that circadian rhythm, which is often seen as a helpful suggestion, is actually the master switch by which all other activities either work the way they're supposed to, or they begin to slowly drift into dysfunction. No doubt, you have patients who are suffering from issues that are caused by disrupted circadian rhythm, but you would never know it because you don't observe their sleeping or their eating habits 24 hours a day. If you were to ask your patients about sleeping habits, as I've done, you would find that very few people actually sleep well. Even when people say they do, a little more probing will usually reveal that many of them stay up way too late, get up way too early, and or have eating habits that don't coincide with their sleeping and their waking pattern. I'm convinced that unless you're mindful and disciplined regarding these habits, you are unlikely to get them right. It certainly won't happen by accident. I'm belaboring the point, but needless to say, this is a great avenue to address with patients when they're not getting the results you might expect them to get. Rather than get frustrated, as often happens, we just need to dig a little deeper and make sure the patient's body is functioning as it should on the most basic fundamental level. Well, I hope you've learned a lot over the last two weeks about the circadian rhythm. I know this is something I never learned about in school. Hopefully it's something we can begin to incorporate into how we help our patients. This really is about the closest thing to a miracle cure just by allowing the body to work the way it's supposed to work. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.